Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows, while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers, and we don't have time for this shit. Couple of things right up front. Tales of the Jedi. We are recording this on the 22nd. Tales of the Jedi, I believe, is supposed to come out the 26th. Is that what we said, Bradley? I guess we should out probably of... check before we started recording. We should have double-checked that, but we did not. Let me real fast. Tales of the Jedi. or something. I just remember seeing Tales it Tales of the so. Jedi comes out on October 26th. So when you listen to this episode, Tales of the Jedi is going to come out two days from today when you're hearing this. Uh, We want to just remind everybody up front that we are going to watch Tales of the Jedi, but Bradley and I will not be taking a break from Andor to cover it. We are going to cover it um, all six episodes in the same depth we would cover anything else after Andor is done. So in between Andor and The Bad Batch, which is going to premiere a couple of weeks later, that's when we'll be doing Tales of the Jedi. So if you come to us for Tales of the Jedi content, you'll have to wait a little bit. There's just there's so much to talk about with Andor. Uh, the only other thing I have before our, our next segment, we do finally have the thing Charles fucked up. I think this might be our first one. Is it? Yeah, I guess so. I think this might be our first one for Andor. At least that someone has pointed out to me or that I did not catch. It's possible to make mista- that I make mistakes. Remember, guys, don't take every podcast you hear at face value. I was listening to some podcasts that I listened to this week, and some of them got some things wrong. Now, I don't tell every single podcast that they got something wrong, but I, w- I just notice when they get wrong. Don't trust us. We are, to quote the divas, just two dumb bitches with microphones. So you should always fact check. But the thing Charles fucked up, I said, okay, you know the scene where like Cassian takes the money and he's got the gun pointed at Vel and she calls him a bastard? Okay. So I said incorrectly that that was the first instance of the word bastard being used. In episode two, when Marva and Cassian are talking, and Marva's like, how did those Primor bastards find out about Canari? Apparently that's the first, or at least an earlier use, so I was incorrect about that. Okay, let let me pull up my timer, because it is time for the Mon Mothma Minute. Oh my god. Her okay. fucking no. So her fucking party gown. Because remember, I looked at the trailers a couple of like about a week ago and I was like, oh, there's two separate party gowns. This one, which is the one she was wearing in the Empire magazine like preview, stunning. Gorgeous. I love the play on what we've come to expect with her, like in the costume design, because basically all of her costumes up until this show have been essentially variations on what she wore in. Return of the Jedi. And this one is an interesting variation on that because it's got kind of the chains, it's got kind of the sweeping sort of white, although this one's a little more white gold look to it. But I like that this kind of plays with that while also being something new because this is Coruscant. This is a different environment. We see sort of the proto elements, especially in this scene, given the context of the scene, we are seeing a lot of the proto elements of what will become Mon Mothma. So that was really cool. And that was the Mon Mothma minute. Me, me talking about the thematic elements of this dress. <laughs> right. All right. Well, 
we we don't have time to sit around because we get a lot to talk about this episode. Bradley, you want to cue us in? Absolutely. This week, we're going to be talking about Andor episode seven titled Announcement. The repercussions of the Aldani heist reach all the way to Coruscant while Cassian returns home. Charles, one thing you liked and one thing you did not. Christ, I'm having such a problem with both of these things this week because like it's an overabundance of options for the thing that I liked. I mean, I like that this episode was a standalone episode. I like that this episode broke the formula. I thought that it was neat to be kind of jarred out of what we've come to expect over the last four weeks for this show. I like that they they didn't just time jump ahead with some of the stuff that they took the time to take this episode to show us. I call it the maneuvering into place episode, but this one was done really effectively well, where the point of the episode was to get the characters from the end of Aldani to where we're going to pick up in the next arc but it was so compelling and interesting to watch the fallout that you don't even notice that the whole point of the episode is to get the characters from point a to point b dislike i have nothing 10 out of 10 no notes this episode was literally perfect from beginning to end uh i cannot think of a single thing overall off the top of my head that i did not like okay what about you bradley one thing you liked and let's see if you can find something to criticize i can but it's like nitpicky it's not oh oh we're diving into the nitpick yeah because it's not gonna be um so one thing i really liked about the episode that we'll get more into detail later on is the is at one point in the episode there's just this random shift in mood and music when we go to the beach planet i don't know why but that took me out of the episode, but then like threw me right back in immediately. It was so funny how it did both because it was like the mood of the episode was one note up until like a certain point. Like it was a very, like this episode has a theme, everything, right? And then the second the beach scene started happening, it was like, whoa, what's going on on this show? Like it was so, it was so cool. I loved it. The so score much. such this radically like changes, like when we're going into radically, Nicholas Bertel, yeah. Nicholas Bertel continues to be like top tier every week every scene when the music changes and it's like oh yeah by the way we're doing space florida now <laughs> right it was awesome um my one thing i didn't like and like i said it's just a little nitpicky honestly i could have used more cyril in this episode i felt like out of all the side characters he got the short end of the stick because he didn't have too much to do yet i know he's Clearly, they're setting him up to do stuff later, but it's like right now he didn't have much to do this episode. So all of his scenes were a little short for me. But other than that, I mean, it was a fantastic episode and I loved seeing all the side characters. Um, but his, I felt, were a little too short. All righty. You want to go ahead and, and take us in then? We begin with Cyril Karn dressing for an interview with the Bureau of Standards. While having breakfast with his mother, the two hear news on the hollow net about a terror attack on Aldani. I definitely have those clone troopers. (laughs) Like I I need to go before the end of our Andor coverage. I I need to go into my boxes and I need to see if I I still have them because I swear to God, I have those clone troopers. I love that you kept saying that because when I was looking on Wikipedia um, today for like notes and stuff, I noticed that on there, it said something about clone trooper toys, like appearance or something like that on there. And I was like, oh, that's weird that you mentioned that the other day and it was the exact one. So yeah, no, because I remember it's the kneeling one specifically was always my favorite. So when I saw the kneeling one, I was like, oh, shit uh yeah i gotta i gotta go in and and try to dig them out if if i can find them i'll post them on our social media uh what those actual toys look like 
Yeah, so Edie just sort of read Cyril for filth, huh? As a as a doting mother, she should because it's oh, yes. one of the funniest parts about the whole Cyril mother relationship is too fucking funny every single week, and I I can't get enough of it. Honestly, oh my god, like watching her verbally destroy him, basically like now two two out of the last three weeks because she clocks his ass immediately. She's like, no, you need attention. You need people to pay attention to you. Look at me, I'm important. I'm like, damn, get his ass. Ugh, I love her so much. She's absolutely fantastic. We do get the the hollow net news, actually. Yeah, that was really, um, I, I didn't know what to expect when I saw that. I was like, oh, they just have the news. Like, it's just like a thing. Like, I know that we've known about the hollow net for a long time. I mean, if you've seen oh, Rebels yeah. or any of the other ones, you've seen oh, it. Oh, it's but ancient. Like, the hollow net is, is ancient right. dating back. It's just funny that seeing it in live action is just different. I don't know. It's just funny. I also love when Star Wars 2 is vintage tech because a lot of times when we've seen the Holonet before, it's like a broadcast. Like it's it's almost like like a radio thing that you kind of listen into and there's like a holographic projection. This is actually like a vintage like TV set and they're watching like a like old time news anchor from like the 60s. And I'm like, that is so cool that they, almost- they made that design choice. It's almost like, I can't tell if like Edie is more like rich because she can visually see the holonet or if she's like less because it's like an old thing. Like, I don't know. I can't tell like what, because not hologram versus like an actual screen. I think the implication, because it's the implication seems to be that she's living in like one of those retirement communities. And like, if that's the case, then yeah, like leaning toward the vintage design in the older, like, tech that she has around that would make sense because that would be what she was more comfortable with i just i love when star wars does this and they're like we're just gonna throw some 70s tech in there like some weird sci-fi in there i love it when they yeah let's just throw a good 70s tv in why not exactly because to the 2022 audience it's practically science fiction back in the day kids um back even in the days of the 90s when you wanted the news you didn't go on the wikipedia or the wikipedia or the online or the twitter or whatever you had to sit there at 5 30 at night and a man on your tv would summarize the news for you at least that's how it was in our house Elsewhere on Coruscant, ISB Colonel Wolf Yularen addresses other senior ISB officials, vowing that the Empire will retaliate swiftly against the rebel attack. Yularen assures his officers that he has spoken with Emperor Palpatine and that the Emperor has granted the ISB access to the Imperial Navy and Imperial Army resources. Yeah, so so do we want to talk about uh, the thing that made me literally scream at my television. Please, please enlighten us all. Yeah, this was the thing, Bradley, that I was like, I'm going to be I'm going to be curious if you pick this up. When at what point did you figure out who this was that was talking? I, you know, honestly, I wasn't as keen as you are, but I know you didn't realize it when you watched the episode, but I know you know it now. So was it when you went to go do your notes for this episode that you figured it out? Yeah, because when I, I, because obviously I just get everything from Wikipedia. I'm, a, I'm not original at all by any means. I hope people know that. Like, I'm not trying to be <laughs> yeah, special. Nobody, I'm not a writer. Nobody, nobody, like... nobody thinks you're that clever or hardworking or funny in the slightest. Yeah, so I thought it was really interesting. that we, Well, one, anytime someone we already know pops up is where it's going to be fun. 
I think for this show, especially like Imperial people, I think that's always going to be a fun thing because they're so minor in like the broader scope of things. But I don't know. It's just nice to see a familiar face once in a while. Yeah. And it's it's interesting the way he's used here because I was raising this point to somebody else and I can't remember who I was talking to, but I was like, the, the nice thing about this particular cameo, bringing in Wolf Yularen, for those of you who are not aware, uh, either because you're just joining us, this maybe is your first show, or you, you know, you're not as knee deep in Star Wars. Wolf Yularen is the major Imperial Security Bureau character. He's not the guy in charge of it, but he's very high ranking. He worked directly for Anakin Skywalker during the Clone Wars. He shouldn't have been Rebels. He shouldn't have been the Thrawn novel. And he is in the Death Star conference room scene in A New Hope. So the thing with this particular cameo is if you don't know who this is, the scene reads exactly the same way. Partagast is sitting down. Partagast is not leading the meeting. It is clearly an all-hands meeting. And this guy is down here walking around talking about how he personally spoke to Emperor Palpatine. And you can immediately look at that and go, okay, I know exactly what's happening here. If you know who that is, and you recognize, either you looked at the subtitles and you realized that was you, Lauren, or you recognized him from the mustache, you get the same impression, but amplified because you know exactly who this is and how close to the top of the ISB he is. And you're like, oh, not only did they bring in the boss in charge, they brought in fucking Colonel Yularen, the guy who's BFFs with Thrawn. Um... Do you want to know who plays Colonel Wolf Yularen? I would love to know who plays Colonel Wolf Yularen in this show. So he kind of has a couple of fun facts. Um, he is played by Malcolm Sinclair. One thing that's just fun is that he was in Casino Royale for uh, James Bond. And his character in that was called Dryden. I just thought that was funny. Um, that is funny. Dryden boss in Solo. He also is in the movie V for Vendetta with Natalie Portman. thought that was interesting. And he's also done voices on the video game Star Wars The Old Republic. Um, he plays yes. a couple of Darth whatevers. So He's Darth Charnas, Darth Mortis, and Darth Helid, or Captain Helid. Uh, I don't recognize any of these names, uh, and I had a really messy breakup with Star Wars The Old Republic, so I didn't commit any of these names to memory. That's totally fair. Um, but I brought up the V for Vendetta only because of the Natalie Portman connection, but also because there's another V for Vendetta that a, a cameo a little bit later with another actor randomly. They both happen to be in the movie, so I just thought I'd bring that one up. Speaking of you, Lauren, uh, I want to zero in on some of the things that he actually says. Specifically, the fact that there's two things that he says, that they've rounded out 146 Aldani for questioning, of the Donnie people for questioning. And they're also basically saying from now on, if any cultural festival gets used as cover for rebel activities, we're going to crack down on the native people. We're going to basically consider them accomplices, whether they had anything to do with it or not. And I think that's one, that's absolutely horrible. But two, that really does go to show how the Empire plans to combat this is they're just going to keep taking people's rights away. Does it matter if it's the people who actually did the raid no so i th i thought that was a super interesting like reaction there's another thing they're going to do later on uh but first i i just want to shout out that we do have a palpatine name drop here i i was like you know what i was for a hot second i was like oh damn are we gonna see him later on in this episode <laughs> like i was we worried for a second i was worried. but again it's like, it's like rogue one right we feel his presence his presence yeah we and, feel but this his one, presence they definitely name dropped though like i was like all right all right all right 
He gets two in this episode. He gets two name drop. Uh, but this also is part of two, like, Yalarin is closer to Palpatine than any people, anyone in this room will ever be. So for, he doesn't refer to him as the Emperor, he refers to him as Emperor Palpatine. So it's a nice way of communicating just how high up the chain attention has been gotten from. Uh, I also do have a little continuity thing here. Uh, so we now know that at the very least, uh, the first episode of Star Wars Rebels takes place after this episode. So they occur in the same year, but we now know Andor comes first. And the way we know this is because they invoke something called the P.O.R.D. There's a name for it, but I didn't write it down. And what the P.O.R.D. says is that any action that negatively affects the Empire, even indirectly, is considered a class one offense. And in the very first episode of Rebels, we see a fruit seller getting harassed and they arrest him for treason. Ah, okay. And someone pointed out on Twitter that it's likely that the invoking of this particular directive is what allowed the Imperial officers to do that which Pablo Hidalgo retweeted. So I'm not willing to say it's canon confirmation of the timeline, uh, but at the very least, Hidalgo himself endorses this particular reading of the text. So the scene where Deidre is basically like, this isn't a robbery, we shouldn't be responding this way. Once again, I feel compelled to point out that Deidre is completely correct. As she always is. As she always is. She's been right about everything the whole time. And no one is listening to her. She should do something about that. <laughs> she should. She should do, maybe, uh, she should do something. Maybe, maybe she can use some of the uh, directives that Yularen is putting in place, specifically more ability to access information. Mm. I wonder if she can use that. Who knows? Mm. Elsewhere on Coruscant, Luthen Rail listens to a transmitter where he receives news that 80 million credits was stolen during the Aldani heist. His assistant, Clea, forms Luthen that Mon Mothma has come for a visit. Mothma apologizes for the abrupt visit and says she was on her way to the Senate. Inside, Mothma asks Luthen if he was responsible for the Aldani heist. Mothma asks Rail, has he realized the gravity of what he's done? She is concerned about the repercussions of the Aldani heist, but Luthen explains that his plan was to get the Emperor to overreact. Okay, before Mon Mothma even shows up, the analog radio that <laughs> Luthen is using. Yeah. I, want to, I want to talk about this sound design. Okay. Because I remember you and I took a sound design course together, or half of one. Yes. And I sound design is a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> So the way that they've made this analog radio kind of sound like a wartime, like secret radio in the back of like a shop in France during the occupation during World War II, they've done just such a good job with it. Like, I just have to shout out this sound design because this yeah. sound design is so good. Okay, so Mon Mothma shows up and walks in and leaves her driver outside. But what's really interesting is while he's facing the driver, Luthen basically continues talking like they're having a conversation about the art piece because the driver is reading his lips. Right. And I'm like, that is so clever because I got confused at first and I was like, oh, when it flashes to that shot of them outside and it's quiet and he's like, the driver's like watching us like, oh, the driver's reading their lips. Like the driver can read their lips from inside. The, the links they have to go to in order to have their conversations. It's, I love it. I love it. This show is everything I wanted and more. This, this scene was the start, honestly, I think for me for like just maybe just the episode in general. I mean, the beginning parts with the ISB stuff 
was nice. But like this scene set the tone for the episode. It was so tense and like just their interaction the entire time, like where it starts off, he's pretending to talk about the art and then it slowly transitions into like what they really want to talk about. He, everything in this scene is so good. And Mothma is like, like, I don't know. She's like betrayed, but she's also like, I know what needed to be done, but I also was like mad at you. Like it's, it's just goes so, back and forth. It's so Yeah. Good. So, so the thing with Mon, here's the interesting thing about Mon Mothma. And, and I've said over and over and over again, I love Mon Mothma as a character. She's one of my favorite Star Wars characters. She is wrong about a lot of things. And one of the things that I disagree with her on is that Mon is about as like milquetoast liberal as they come. Mon really believes in like democracy. She believes in terror and like that the fascist order that's on top of the galaxy needs to fall and that democracy in the Republic needs to resume. The problem with Mon is she does not like the idea that she would have to not play by the rules and that innocent people would have to get hurt. She balks at that, the idea that there will be collateral damage caused by their side. And that makes her uncomfortable and angry. And we're going to see this later at a later point. This is going to be her big issue with Saw Gerrera, is that Saw Gerrera is going to go way too far for her liking. This is going to be an issue when she's Chancellor of the New Republic. She's not going to press the New Republic far enough. She's going to disarm the New Republic. She's going to not prosecute the Imperials the way they should. And she's essentially going to allow for the First Order to escape and form in the outer regions and, and come back. So we're seeing a lot in this scene with just how furious she is. But she's also a woman who, who very much has a lot of conviction because she's one of the only people we've seen in the show so far. When Luthen gets his really like serious voice, she doesn't cower. She doesn't cower held by it. She doesn't be quiet. She snaps right back at him. And I part of why I love that interaction is because he tries to talk to her the way he talks to Vel. It doesn't work for Mon. Mon's like, I'm not having this. Is Mon correct to be as, you know, angry as she is that people are getting hurt? That's a debatable point. Uh, certainly, you know, she was not told about this and she feels, you know, maybe a little bit betrayed by that. But she's not about to sit here and let Luthen lecture her, which I really love about this interaction between them. And I also like how this conversation reveals why why this Aldani heist happened too because I think what we didn't realize before was that Luthen was using Mon for her funds she has yes um, family money essentially that they were going to use to start kind of jumpstart this rebellion right and we didn't realize like oh they need a lot of fucking money to do this <laughs> obviously because yes, they've got and, the Aldani money and they're trying to get right. her money so it's interesting that now we know, you know, the start of the rebellion, you know, kind of started with them robbing a bank, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And and one thing, too, that I hadn't thought of until this episode was like, what does Mon have that other people in the rebellion are not going to have? And it's money. And I think if she were working with someone like Bail Organa more directly in this moment, that she would have a lot more say. But Luthen as a character is, is almost essentially trying to cut out people that aren't him from the, the equation. He he doesn't do this. He's a very paranoid person and he doesn't want to let people in unless he absolutely has to. It really seems like the only person he trusts is Clea, which is bullshit because Mon was there literally in the conversation in, I think it was Padme's apartment when the rebellion started. So like using her as a piggy bank is ridiculous, especially given, you know, the role she's eventually going to play, but that's where we're at characters are. I, there's a lot going on in this conversation that's just 
fantastic. Uh, one, one thing that I particularly wanted to point out for my book readers is the line, if you're not willing to risk your conscience, surrender and be done with it. Please go and read Contingency Plan from the first From a Certain Point of View book. And once you do, this line will hit a lot different. I will not spoil the events of Contingency Plan, but I will say this line will hit a lot different. Also, shout out to uh, Genevieve O'Reilly's fucking acting in this scene. Like, girl, the way that she, the way that she, like, barely contains her rage and disappointment the entire scene, and just, like, the cold fury that she has, and then the fucking, when she gets into the car and she's looking at him through the car, like, that look of absolute, like, disappointment and anger in her face. Uh, Genevieve, you, you were born for this role. I like how she has to do it all while pretending to be like, oh, I just returned something at the store like <laughs> still like she has to put on this front for her driver it's just great oh yeah and like the way that genevieve effortlessly switches between like the facade mon puts on and then the real mon and these are like completely natural she makes both of them look completely natural like she's so good she's so good at the bureau of standards cyril karn tours on his first day of work his supervisor talks about the work that the Bureau does. The supervisor questions Karn about his prior employment on Morlana 1. Karn believes that he was punished for trying to uphold the law and do his job. Karn says that he seeks to clear his name and have his record expunged. The supervisor offers to help by suggesting a job opening in fuel purity. I love that Cyril gets his job through nepotism and corruption. Uh, and uh, to top it all off, they even literally bring up the reason why he got fired from his last job and he's still gets the goddamn job and then, and then they're just like we'll just delete that we'll just ignore no that no big deal just people got murdered while you were on duty last time uh so you want this chair right here <laughs> we'll just ignore that um we'll just put you right here no i i love that he has this opportunity to stick to his principles uh to say that you know i don't want to work for a place that's going to bend the rules and what does he do he lets them bend the rules so he can have the job and it, it goes to show that Cyril's sort of starting to break under the system. Like his principles are becoming more flexible than they were back on Moilana 1. And I think that's indicative of not good things in the character and the where the character is going. Yeah, I like seeing the fall because we, we have him at one place. He's being put in a situation now where he clearly doesn't want to do what he's about to be doing. And it's going to break him. And he's going to either freak out and make it worse for himself or he's going to just go completely the opposite direction that he's gonna like honestly I don't even know it's gonna be very interesting to see how his character changes from here on out because I think you're right I think he is changing his belief system in a way like he knows like he has to start changing the way he's playing the system because it's changing the way he's in it yeah and it's not a change for the better it it really isn't. I'm, I would be scared. I know for a fact he crosses paths with Deidre, so I'm kind of frightened to put these two in the same room. I feel like uh, they would not be good influences on each other. I, I'm kind of making the prediction now. I feel like their chance meeting, I mean, I, if you can call it that, um, is going to be what plucks him out of obscurity again. Like he's going to be in this, like we see he's in this kind of cubicle essentially, and he's going to fucking hate it. And then Deidre is going to come along and pluck him out of obscurity and then give him a purpose again and i think that's what that's what we're gonna see and he's Ooh. gonna take that and run with it we also see a mouse droid that he almost 
<laughs> he almost <laughs> runs over. I was expecting him to like kick the mouse droid, but we do get to see a mouse droid. That is cute. Elsewhere on Coruscant, a hooded Clea walks past Imperial security to secretly meet with a disguised Vel. She then turns to the matter of Cassian, regarding him as a loose end. Clea tasks her with killing him. Meanwhile, Deidre visits an attendant and requests access to two years worth of data from a multi-sector data blend. On Aldani, Cinta is about to mount her speeder bike as she watches an Imperial Star Destroyer fly over the Sacred Valley. And we finally have some stormtroopers! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> the stormtroopers are here. Uh, yeah, my, my, my real notes on uh, the scene where uh, Clea is walking along is just Nicholas Bertel go off. We, we love a good... Just... He loves to just throw in this random music sometimes, like when the character is walking or doing something, like has a purpose to go somewhere. It's like he gives them a theme every single time. Oh, yeah. Like I, I for starters, I'm going to be listening to the soundtrack. I think they just dropped episodes one through six. I'm going to be listening to the soundtrack at the gym now because this is walking music. This is walking on the treadmill music. Um, but also, like, I kind of want to get the actual CD like for my car because my car doesn't have a, a phone jack. And I want to listen to this when I drive. Oh, do we? want to talk about uh attendant falzones sure if you have anything on uh i do uh attendant falzones is played by i am so sorry rajavan vasan is i believe how you pronounce this gentleman's name uh he was does not have a disney trifecta but he's close he was in the 2019 dumbo uh that's a disney thing that is a disney thing so he's got the Disney's got the Star Wars, but he hasn't been in a Marvel yet. Um, yeah, that's the Disney thing he was in. He's also in The Last Witness. He's also in um, Save Me, the TV show. It looks like he's just got a couple of random roles. I do love the uh, can-do, will-do exchange because uh, that is also some shit that I would pull. And it shows you that she's still in charge. Like, she's like, uh, no, you're going to do this thing. <laughs> yep, you will do it. You will, there, Do or do not, there is no try. There you go. She should have said that. Uh, not so many words. Deidre Miro (laughs) entering her Yoda era. Uh, and oh no, there's a Star Destroyer flying over Senta. That was a interesting shot that randomly was in this episode. I, I was curious because this this was the most random thing that was in the episode was this shot of Senta. Now, to be fair, had they intercut it with her talking about Senta, like I think it would have made more sense because it kind of like it's it's not bookended here because I kind of the way I just separated them into three separate scenes, even though they're kind of s- slightly intercut. But I think actually maybe she does. They do throw it in there after she says Cinta's doing what she's supposed to be doing. So it's it's says. right before because I noted oh, okay. it like it's this shot and then we have the scene of which we'll get to in in the next section of Vel and Clea. Right. Uh, so when we see Clea say she's doing what she was in, instructed to do, we know that she's back on Adani. But oh no, there's a Star Destroyer there. Oh, and now I'm wondering like is Cinta gonna be okay? Like, is she gonna be able to make it out of this? Because now it looks like they're really cracking down on Aldani. Oh, yeah. And that's, what I love about this scene is that it, it wordlessly communicates that. Yeah, like, right? she's it, she's in trouble. Like She's in be, trouble. Yeah, they're cracking down. And it doesn't need a single line of dialogue to say it. The minute you see that Star Destroyer, you're like, oh, you're like, oh here we go. He's screwed. Um, I also want to talk about how 
amazing Vel looked in uh, her scene because holy fuck. <laughs> She's so is, late. Is, yes, let us absolutely talk about how amazing. She took the time like to do her hair. Do her hair. Do she her hair. Nice outfit on. She's got, like, yeah. She's very like, coruscant Girl, today. <laughs> girl, you went full coruscant today. Uh, but I really, I want to know what the deal with her and Luthen is where she genuinely thought Luthen would like show up. Yeah, and I'm wondering if, if that's because maybe before this meeting um, she was just communicating him like you know the way you should when you're about to plan a heist like maybe we don't get super connected we go through other people so it's safer and then she does something maybe like for him like pull off a successful heist for 80 million credits and then it's like I expect to fucking see the guy who hired me to meet him yeah and it it makes me think because Vel is coming off in the four episodes we've had with her as a very impulsive person like not impulsive but like she doesn't think through things very much and so Claire sort of admonishes her for being like obviously Luthen was not going to show up and meet you personally like are you kidding like seriously she's like think a little bit like we've we've already been over this why it's so dangerous in the first place why the fuck would he show up but I want to know what the relationship between Luthen and Vel is that Luthen that Vel genuinely thought that maybe Luthen would come down to actually see her there are oh, some you... theories. There's some theories that like Vel is Luthen's daughter. I was just about to say, are you thinking like maybe they're like estranged? Like, and it's like, like I'm very thinking much... they might be related. That would be very interesting because th- it actually is more interesting in the fact that she's the only person that he trusts to do something for him, kind of thing. Like, because it's his daughter. Exactly. Because Cleo just out and out tells her who Cassian is and is like, we need you to go silence Cassian and Andor. Uh, I also... Like, they just randomly threw that at us and I was like, well, I was not expecting that storyline. Go kill Cassian. Okay. I also found it interesting that they kind of knew about Skeen. Yeah, they suspected him at least. Which goes to show that probably Vel told them what Cassian said and they were like, okay, yes. They were like, ah, yep. Well, that just confirmed our suspicions anyway, so it's whatever. Speaking of confirming suspicions, uh, I am pleased to report uh, that the Star Wars show host Kristen Baver on an episode of the Star Wars show uh, did confirm and explicitly use the term girlfriends to refer to Cinta and Bell. Nice. Has not been identified as such in the show, but I needed to point out to our listeners that as far as the Star Wars brand is concerned, these are lesbians. I love it. I need to know what Cinta's up to, though. Well, that will... You know what? Maybe we'll see. You know, clearly they're going to keep bringing them back. Thank you, uh, Star Wars, This Week in Star Wars, for explicitly saying it out loud. Meanwhile, on Ferrix, Cassian returns to his home to see Marva and B2. Marva warns Andor that he cannot stay here since the Empire has taken over. She reveals that Tim betrayed him and was killed, and that Bix tried to warn him. Cassian invites Marva and B2 to flee with him, claiming that he has won enough credits to leave. Andor decides to delay their plans to the following day so that he can speak to Bix one last time. One thing I found really interesting about this scene is the notion of how gossip spreads on Ferrix, where Marva mentions hearing several versions of the Tem story. She knows that Tim was the one that ratted Cassian out, but she's heard different variations of the story, which is just an interesting note about like gossip spreading on Ferrex and how much people know about things. 
I just found that element of the scene extremely interesting. I also found interesting how, like, the interplay between Cassian and Marva in the scene. Now, we can't break down every single line of dialogue, but the way that they go back and forth where Cassian basically shows up in the middle of the night and says, we're going to run away. And he really genuinely believes, like, this is going to be in the best interest of everyone. And Marva's like, I, I, I just don't know how to explain to you yet that I'm not going. And it's not, I need you to give me time to go. Or to, I need you to give me time so I can prepare to go. It's, I need a time to explain to you why I can't go. It's, it's such an interesting, like, dynamic between the two. And she kind of placates him a little bit. She's like, well, you know what, just, just go, like, see, you know, a few people real quick. And then, like, say your goodbyes real quick. And then we'll, then we'll go. Then, then, then we'll, we'll talk about it. Like, she doesn't. It's a stalling tactic. It's obviously a stalling tactic. Yeah. That was all of my actual notes. Yeah, it, there's not much more there. Uh, once we come back to Ferrex after the dinner party, it gets it's, more interesting. It's, so. it's a very good scene. I don't yeah. know what, what you yeah. want me to tell you. Okay. Yes. The scene in which I have the most notes. You want to okay, breathe? This is your, you wanna, you this is your breathe? big you section want... right here. Actually, this, this is probably is... where I'll split the episode, honestly. This is probably where this part two will start because this is such a big chunk of the episode. This is we'll what see. the people are here for. The people are here to listen to me rant about the 40-something-year-old politician oh, in Star Wars. The only scene we care about, obviously. The only scene I care about. I've watched <laughs> it multiple times. Back on Coruscant. Mon Mothma attends a party. She meets with a visiting Shindrillin man named Tay Kaloma, who is an old friend and banker. In private, Mothma tells Tay that she needs his help for a political plan. He warns that some of his colleagues have taken their political allegiances too far. Mothma explains that her public persona is a front. Mothma is aware that her driver is an ISB plant who monitors her humanitarian activities. Mothma wants the Empire to think that she is an irritation in order to conceal her true purpose, which is raising money. Mothma seeks Tay's help in accessing her family accounts. As Perrin approaches, Mothma warns Tay that he is unaware of Mothma's true activities and that he is not to be trusted. Before we dive into this dinner party, do you want to tell us any information about who is playing Tay Colma of the Bank of Colma? Yes. So he is played by Ben Miles. Um, I saw that he is our second V for Vendetta actor. So there's your Natalie Portman connection. And he was also in the 2013 TV Dracula show. I don't know if that's the same TV Dracula show that our one actor was a couple episodes ago. Uh, it not, is. But... It is. It okay. is. It is cool. the terrible uh, Jonathan. Gotcha. Jonathan Rees Meyers. I figured you would I think. I figured yeah. Uh, the name of the character is Browning. I believe he is one of the villains of the show, but it has been a long time since I've thought about this show. He's certainly in all 10 episodes of it. So nice. Um, this show is terrible. Don't go watch it. Um, only redeemed by the fact it's not nearly as bad as uh, Netflix's Stephen Moffat's Mark Gatiss's uh, BBC's Dracula. Uh, yes, so he was in that. Well, I like him much better in this because uh, the sexual tension between. <laughs> I'm, just uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I actually do like that the scene didn't seem to go there. Like, right. well. They might go the direction where Perrin thinks that she's hooking up with her old friend, but, but I don't well, think yeah. I don't, I don't think know if it's like explicit, 
I think it's he could be seen as like maybe an old flame or like just a very old dear friend kind of thing. Yeah, like, it, and, it could read a number of ways. Right. There's You can do it a couple different ways. I mean, I'm sure in Perrin's eyes, maybe this is a like they're really friendly, but like, let's just not let it go too far. Right. Like they can be friends, but I don't want her to be alone with him forever. Like just because I'm insecure. That's probably exactly his kind of thought process. It's it. We'll get to Perrin in this scene because Perrin does something really interesting in this scene. So my boyfriend and I were watching the show. We're we're in sort of we did things in a rare order. So normally what's what, what will happen is, you know, I will watch the episode and then usually I will do my notes watch pretty quickly after, and then my boyfriend and I will get around to it. But he pointed out something really, really cool about the party scene that I needed to bring up. We have not seen alien on aliens on Coruscant up to this point. And I believe he mentioned in an earlier scene, he looked at it. We were talking about the brutalist architecture in the the Clea scene. And he goes, yeah, one of the main differences I'm noticing between upper level Coruscant now and upper level Coruscant during the prequel era is that there aren't any aliens there. And he pointed out when we got to the Mon Mothma scene, he went, there's actually aliens at this party. We can see non-humans at this party. And it's one of the first times that we've seen non-humans on Coruscant is at this particular party, which tells us a lot about Mon Mothma's guest list and like the type of person that she keeps around, even before she starts talking about some interesting stuff later in the scene. So he pointed that out. I thought that was really cool and clever. I stole it for notes. And I'm not sure if you can hear me complimenting him through the door right now uh, because he is outside in the main room playing Pokemon. So we'll we'll see if he texts me that he heard me talking about it. But it, I thought that was a really cool observation because I hadn't noticed it. Yeah, I also like the, I guess the main kind of alien that we see is this like alien woman. Um, I, I love costumes like that. But I also like, there was another one, I think uh, later on, in the scene where there's this one where the actors are talking to the alien, another alien woman, I think. Um, and she's very clearly like uh, animatronic um, and her mouth is just moving. Like the body is not moving that much. It's just really funny. I thought it was it's, hilarious. It, there's like, to it. Well, is it the authorian? I think so. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. an authorian you can kind of see in the background. Speaking of things that you can see in the background, uh, you can actually see like the dynamic between Lita and Perrin where Lita is clearly asking to leave the party and Perrin is like, no, you got to go ask your mom. And Lita's like, I don't want to ask my mom. Like you can, you can see this interaction taking place. And I love that that's sort of happening in the background. And there's also kind of a sense that, that Perrin might be, if you subscribe to the theory that Perrin is nefarious, for reasons we will get to later on in the scene. You can almost see Perrin kind of turning Lita against Mon in this moment to where it's like, well, I want to let you go, but you have to go ask your mom and breeding that that teenage resentment. Yeah, I think that I think that part, at least with the daughter, is more so him. I don't want to say being petty, but like it's that thing where like parents try to play the favorite. Like he wants to be the one that the daughter will come to and ask things and just exactly. be overall liked more and so he wants to be the fun one he wants to be the fun parent and which is bad is clearly, parenting right is the bad parent right yeah well oh it's bad parenting on parents part he wants to make it out so there's a fun parent and like a, a not fun parent like a rules enforcing parent uh which is just a really terrible paternal way to do things the banker line is absolutely fucking hilarious 
the line where Tay's like, I'm a banker and no one pays me to be original. I fucking cackled because I spent several years working as a banker to my great shame. <laughs> well, you belonged at this dinner. I I would have fucking slayed at this. First of all, I would have had like a top tier outfit. Like I would not have dressed myself. Someone would have put something on me. I would have actually slayed in this room. (laughs) So I I promise I'm not going to dress every single shot in this scene. I, I swear to you, I will not. But I have to talk about some of the direction in it because I particularly noted this line when they're starting to have their conversation and the camera occasionally cuts to the other side of the barrier like someone is watching them. And then also we can see there's certain shots of it to where we can see that Perrin has moved closer. So yeah, Perrin is totally spying on this conversation or trying to, right? Yeah, he's just like, I, you can see him in the background kind of like he goes up to a couple or something and he like kind of pretends to kind of talk to him. He's like, looking at them and like not really paying attention to what they're saying and the camera like cuts over to where you can see like from his perspective them talking uh i just this is the thing that i talked about that you can see perrin moving about in this scene trying to listen in on them and mon's trying to like steer tay away from them which uh right i mean I, I don't know if I think he's like nefarious in the sense that he's like working secretly for the Empire spying on her or anything like that. But I also think it's more of a like he's he's le- he's losing his control on her. I feel like he had a sense of control I, of her. I think he doesn't trust her. Right. I, yeah, he just doesn't understand. I don't think he just understands her anymore. Or, or like they maybe like they knew each other like when they were first in love or whatever you want to call it. And I think he feels like they're drifting apart. And it's like one of those things that he doesn't understand. So he's trying to understand and he can't. Yeah, I I think it's, yeah, I think it's more interesting than he's just spying on her. I think there's genuine like marital discourse here. And what's going to happen is is going to be as a result of that. It's not going to be necessarily as a result of Heron like directly working for the Empire. Although the idea of there being marital discourse here is absolutely fucking hilarious. If you read Leia, Princess of Alderaan. Have you read this book, Bradley? No. Why is this hilarious? Go and read Leia, Princess of Alderaan. No, I'm not going to tell you because it is a fucking hilarious scene. Like, if you've read Leia, Princess of Alderaan, the Mon Mothma scene, the Mon Mothma dinner scene in that novel, if you know, you know. Yeah, I'll keep a lookout. Speaking of Mon Mothma, she says some really interesting things about her political activities, specifically that she has a reputation for fighting on behalf of separatists. And she even formed something called the Separatist Coalition, which the Grand Vizier Masamita has infiltrated those meetings. So I have had a lot of conversations this week about what does this mean exactly? Does my personal theory is that the separatist worlds are not getting any representation at all in the Senate. They have no senator which is also part of why a bunch of those Senate pods were dark in the Imperial Senate. But I've also heard a theory potentially, and I've floated around the idea that possibly they divvied up separatist systems to fall under Loyalist Republic senators, and now they're getting ignored. Either way, we know Mon's whole thing in the Senate is basically advocating on behalf of former separatist planets that are either not getting represented at all or getting completely shat on by the core worlds. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because... It shows why she's one sympathetic to alien people if a lot of them were 
quote unquote separatists because they thought something was going on, you know, before nefarious and that's why they were leaving. And then also the Clone Wars didn't, you know, help with the separatists. People were like, oh, those people are all traitors and they don't deserve any respect anymore kind of thing. And I don't know. It's right. very interesting to see the evolution of that into the Empire. Yeah. And, and the way that the Empire, the Empire in a way is doing what the Republic always wanted to do, but the Empire doesn't have to be subtle about it. Like, and I also like that, you know, Mon's method for seeming ineffectual is like tying herself to a dying lost cause. So when people see her, they kind of roll their eyes and be like, oh, is she advocating for the separatist planets again? No one actually cares about those. They were on the wrong side during the war. The writing in this scene is so fucking good. I I, I could pick That's apart at the, <laughs> I could it. pick apart every line of dialogue. I only I only wrote down my two favorite lines, and one okay. of them occurs when she's talking about how she learned from Palpatine. And the line is, I show you the stone in my hand and you miss the knife at your throat. Girl, Mon, honey. She's got some repression there. She's like, uh <laughs> Where where how long have you been waiting to say this? How long has this been buried down? And then she just fucking girl bosses like Tay's ass. Where she sits there and she's like, here's exactly what I'm doing. I am not getting mildly tipsy and being moderately like seditious at dinner parties. Uh, I'm actually very actively working against the Empire. I can't tell you what I'm doing, but here's exactly what I'm, what I'm going to do. And then my absolute favorite line is the last time she does it right at the very end. When Perrin starts walking over and she leans down and she's like, Perrin knows none of this. He is not to be trusted. Yeah. Smile. The guy's like, uh, what? And she goes, (laughs) smile. And then smiles. And I'm like, that is incredible. First of all, on the level of like her constantly reinforcing, just smile, smile, and no one will know what you're doing. Because that's exactly what she does in the Imperial Senate. But also different commentators than two cishet men have pointed this out the fact that a woman is instructing a man on how to just smile and no one will pay attention to you has a lot of very cool interesting layers to it there are several other star wars podcasts uh that are not just two uh cishet white guys doing it so i also actively encourage people to listen to those but that was a perspective from uh, some women and femmes that I have heard expressing that they thought that was a really cool dimension to that scene too. Dear Lord, we spent so much time on that scene. I was going to say, uh, do you have any, I mean, I know you have more, but like, I don't want to spend too much time I'm, on it. I'm out, of, I'm out of notes on that scene. All right, let's move on then. Back on Ferrix, Andor visits Bix. She tells him that he should not be here because it is not safe. She blames Cassian for putting the entire town at risk. When Cassian asked her how Luthen knew so much about him, Bix said that she didn't give any information. Cassian gives Bix the credits that he owes to everyone. Cassian, this is the moment where you learn that your actions have consequences for the people around you. I like how Bix was also like, dude, you came back here, but no one likes you. Why would you come back? Why are you here? Well, because she's mad at him, because in large part, what happened was his fault. It's his fault. It it was his fault. It was also, you know... Tim's fault and Lisa's fault and right. Cyril's fault. And it was a lot of different people's faults. It was complicated. But like, she's correctly mad at him because she 
tried to do the right thing by him and got screwed over for it. And the moment where the door opens and he sees like, cause he's trying to do this whole, like let's play on the dynamic that we have. And he, op- she opens the door and he sees her and it's just like, what the fuck happened to you? You happened Cassian. Like these were the consequences of your actions. Did you think they were only going to fall back on you? But then at the same time, like he correctly points out that like his life, what is it? Uh, your crazy boyfriend tries to get me killed and suddenly I'm the villain. Because also, yeah, a large part of it is circumstances outside of Cassian's control and other people making shitty decisions. This is, again, this is like the Marva scene earlier. This is such a great scene and I can't sit here and explain to you in detail why it is a great scene. It's just a great scene with the dialogue and the acting and the directing and, and all of it. Do you think this is the last of Bix we're going to see this season? Oh, God. Oh, no. No. And because we see shots of Deidre on Ferex, and oh, at the end right, of this, right. she gets reassigned Ferex. I think she's going to turn up on Ferex, and, and that's okay. going to be the flashpoint for the rest of the season that we're gradually going to see rebellion fermenting on, on Ferex, not to get too ahead of ourselves in the notes. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. I also like that Cassian does pay everyone back, which is part of the reason he came back. Because he's right. like, I, I am going to pay people now. back the money. So I like that. That was that was a nice, I hate this term because I hate this book. But this was a nice save the cat moment. Ah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Where where it's like, no, he really is a good guy. He really did want to pay people back. While walking through the streets of Ferrix, Cassian avoids a pair of stormtroopers. He experiences a flashback of he and his adoptive father, Clem, watching clone troopers parading. Clem attempts to break up a fight on the street and someone throws stones at the clone troopers. Their commanding officer believes Clem was the culprit. Back at the family home, Marva tells Cassian that she is not leaving. She and Cassian are still haunted by the memory of Clem's body hanging in the square and Cassian confronting clone troopers. Marva tells him to run away and find peace. As Andor takes his leave, Marva counsels him to stop searching for his sister because she believes there were no survivors on Canari. She says that what happened there was not his responsibility because he was a child, and before exiting, Andor vows to return one day. I thought it was a really interesting choice to when when they shot the first flashback scene. When so it's it's young Cassian, like the younger preteen or teenage Cassian from the back. And then when it shows him in the front, it shows like the adult Cassian visually demonstrating to the audience that Cassian is reliving this memory, that this is not just a flashback. This is a memory he's reliving as the stormtroopers march past him while he's hiding. And that's that really, really sexy, sexy visual storytelling that I love so much. The put your phone down, honey, you have to actually watch the show storytelling. Please, you have to watch the scene real quick. It's very important. Look at all the little details. Put put the (laughs) the phone down. The shots are communicating things visually. I also like that it's because we thought that Clem was more of a rebel from the way that Luthen talked about him in episode three, uh, but that didn't really gel with what we saw of him in episode three. Now it makes more sense that Clem was the one trying to keep the peace and died for it. And I think that's an important part of Cassian's character, the idea that he watched someone try to take the middle road, try to take the peaceful road and got killed for it anyway. And that messes with you and i love that yeah and he definitely just it's that learned behavior of well it doesn't matter if you're good or it doesn't matter if you're bad because clearly you're gonna get fucked by the empire regardless exactly but star wars is not political um are you happy that we finally saw 
clone troopers uh, walking around on screen for once. Yeah, I I knew they were coming, uh, but we haven't seen like a clone trooper like on screen. Well, we saw one in Obi Wan Kenobi. We saw them in Obi Wan right. Kenobi to horrifying extreme. <laughs> what happens when they but it was, they're old? Well, it was really nice to see like the traditional classic white armored clone trooper back. Uh, I liked Clem's line a lot, where he basically said they were there to raise their flag and then leave, which is very much I'm sure what he thought the Empire was doing. Now, whether or not the Empire was actually going to do that, we see on plenty of planets in the Clone Wars, like Ryloth uh, being a big one that sometimes the Republic came in and didn't, didn't leave. So, I, to answer your question, I was very happy to see clone troopers marching along down down the screen. Yeah, I have I, I like them. They're, sorry, they're, go ahead. Yeah, I like them. I just I just like having one just the physical presence because you know obviously they've been cgi up until yes Boba, and it was nice to see everyone everyone kenobi oh i'm sorry Obi-Wan CGI kenobi. until everyone kenobi um and it's nice to see them one just in like i don't want to say young form but you know what i mean like it's like the proto stormtroopers they're like peak performance almost like so it's nice to see them um and i i just i want more than just flashbacks and old men that are hobos on the street like they're so close to giving us live action bad batch basically <laughs> so it's like come on maybe they will I'm, I'm trying to think of no there's nothing upcoming that i can think of there's nothing upcoming that i can think of yeah this live action that may incorporate clone troopers yeah because there's not. there's the acolyte and then we're skipping right over to lando i think is the next show after that that takes place chronologically that's in development maybe if ahsoka has flashbacks in it but other than that maybe but they would it. be very brief yeah so oh well i i need to badly i need to ask a question um in fact i'm gonna google this right now because i have to know okay i was gonna ask fiona shaw where is your emmy uh, she does actually have two uh, Primetime Emmy Awards, uh, both for Supporting Actress in 2019 and 2020 uh, for drama series. And this scene she has with Cassian demonstrates why she has two Emmys. <laughs> Holy God. She's great. And, and honestly, one, it's because she's British, obviously. But uh, she's a <laughs> she's just a great actress anyway. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's absolutely fantastic in this scene. Like, there's one scene, there's one note I have down here where I'm like, this scene is honestly too good for notes. It's another one like the Bix and Cassian scene where it's like, just just go watch it. <laughs> I can't explain yeah, it to you. Just you. Gotta it's, see it. it's there. Uh I, I found it interesting because like she doesn't know that Cassian was on Aldani. So when she talks about the Aldani crew, she makes it sound like she thinks that they're like these heroes standing up against the Empire. Cassian, who is physically there, is like, no, it was just a robbery because from his point of view, he doesn't know about Vel. He doesn't know about the motivations of, of really anybody who was there besides what they told him. And then Skeen wound up betraying him. So, or trying to weasel his way out of it. So that really shook Cassian's faith in it. And like, he can't just come out and tell Marva, like, no, I was there. They were awful people. Like, there's so many layers to the scene. Oof, so good. And what I like is that the, what the show keeps reminding us is that clearly the women of the show see things for what they really are. And the men, for some reason, never can see things the correctly. 
And because like, men are stupid, Bradley. They are, but it's just interesting that like even she sees the robbery as something different than what a uh, face value of what it is. Deidre sees the robbery as something different than the face value of what it is. And it's like, even Mon Mothma, she brings it up. She's like, do you know what you just did? It's not just a robbery. It's a statement. It's more than that. And then all these female characters, they tell you what <laughs> this means for everybody else. And all the men are just like, yeah, but we just stole the money. Like, we needed the money. <laughs> the moral of the story is you should listen to women when they talk. Ugh. I I just wrote down my favorite line from the scene. I, I didn't write down every single line Marva says that I love because I would have written down the entire script for the scene. But the bit where Cassian goes, you can't beat them, Marva. And she replies, not if I run away hurt me on an emotional level and then oh the whole bit i actually started writing down the exchange that they have about like worrying i would worry about you every day and then she goes well that's just love and i've never loved anything more than i love you and i'm like i can't keep writing these lines down because they're all good i, I was gonna say once we get to, I was like, once we get to the writer i'm gonna be like wow he this is impressive like just impressive the writing absolutely just just went off go back and watch this scene again if you have not uh it is better than you remember it being back on coruscant at the isb central office during a meeting lieutenant blevin lodges a complaint against deidre for overreaching deidre acknowledges obtaining the data using the imperial emergency act in the wake of the aldani heist to gather data across multiple sectors without official sanction deidre accuses blevin of being more concerned with self-preservation partagaz reassigns the more Lana Sector and Ferex to Deidre. In private, Hardigaz compliments Deidre for playing the game, but warns her to watch her back. This is some girl boss shit. This was my favorite scene. This is some girl boss. This was some fucking good ass shit because it was I a think... mixture of like lawyer show mixed with like just political drama mixed with just like, hey girl, watch your back because these people, these empire boys, they be coming for you. I want to note that the most two most tense and interesting scenes in this series, in this episode, in this series, and possibly in all of Star Wars, one of them is two old friends having a conversation at a dinner party, and the other one is a boardroom meeting. I love it. I love it. You can't beat it. It's so it is, good. It is A-tier girl boss shit that is happening in this scene. And just the direction and the way that they've like framed the scene, like the shots they have of the underneath like in film language for our listeners bradley of course knows this in film language when you shoot someone from underneath slightly it gives them a position of dominance and the way that they shoot like blevin and deidre from a slightly lower angle like god this is so good this is so good uh deidre is easily the most frightening person in this room because she she is the only one to play the game the way the rebels are playing the game, which is your rules need to adapt or they need to die. And that makes her terrifying because the rebellion is relying on the empire to trip over itself. And what's that's like what kind of what Luthen was saying was like he wants the empire to overreact, kind of mess up, not pay attention as closely. And honestly, Deidre gives me Thrawn vibes here in that she can see things from different points of view and just adjust, right? So she's kind of improvising almost in a sense. Like she's trying to be aloof and not follow the 
rules super strictly because that's not going to help her. She's not going to solve her problems by going by the book and doing everything exactly the way you're supposed to do it. She realizes that and she goes, well, the way I'm going to get ahead is to go through all the loopholes and I'm going to make sure that I win. Yeah, she's she's not as concerned about her career advancement. She's genuinely concerned about destroying the rebels. And she's the only person in this room to understand that if they don't adapt the system to the rebels, they will lose. And that makes her terrifying because she understands the rebel's playbook better than anyone else here. Even even she manages to convince Partagast. So it's absolutely terrifying to watch her do this because like we see in later episodes, you know, she's now been assigned to, to Ferrix and we see in trailers like and promotional images, shots of her on Ferrix. It's going to be terrifying to see her, especially if she teams up with Cyril, going after Cassian. Like, we're starting to run out of trailer footage, guys. We have nothing from the last two episodes and we barely have anything from the three that are coming up. My final note on the scene is they once again mention Ord Mantell. I have to wonder what's happening with the Bad Batch at this point, because uh, it's been it's been 10 years after our first Bad Batch episode. Uh, no, it's been 13 years since the Bad Batch started, I believe, because it's five years before New Hope. Okay, so... so I wonder what the Bad Batch are up to. Yeah, I wonder if they'll mention things that maybe happen in season two of the Bad Batch, like just like. Like, we wouldn't know the connection yet until we watch Bad Batch later. I feel like that's just a little minor Easter egg, but if Bad Batch continues all the way up to this point, it's possible this may retroactively be a reference to the Bad Batch. On a beach resort world of Niamos, Cassian is stopped by a shore trooper who thinks he is acting suspiciously. The shore trooper calls for backup as several individuals flee on the beach. Cassian claims he is a tourist, but the shore trooper does not believe him and calls a security droid for backup. After being caught, Cassian is hauled up before a judge. The judge sentences him to six years in prison, citing new imperial guidelines. Despite his protests, Cassian is hauled away. On Coruscant, Cyril Karn browses through records along with countless of other employees. Do we want to talk about some actors who show up in this scene? Let's talk about actors so, who show up on the beach resort. Because <laughs> there's some there's some there's a bunch of different characters on this, but there's just some fun ones. So I'll I'll go ahead and list off some of the ones that I looked up and then we will take it from there. So Wendy, who is the woman who wakes up in Cassian's bed, is played by Katrina Nare. I believe that's how you pronounce that. Uh, other roles include, uh, it looks like it's mostly just minor roles, but she's been in EastEnders, Doom Annihilation, just a couple of random movies. The KX unit. We've seen him before in the show. We have Aiden Cook. So if you go back to our our last episode, everything we said about Dr. Quadpod, this is the same guy. He's playing the KX unit and the alien bailiff. At least nice. he's credited as the KX unit. The judge is being played by a woman named BT Edney. Uh, BT Edney's other roles include, looks like she's been in The Corner. Uh, looks like she's been Law, Law and Order UK. And the final one that I have, and I know you don't have this one. Are you Do sure? You, oh, well, challenge. Do you want to tell me, Bradley, who is voicing the shore trooper that arrests Cassian Andor? I'll be honest, it's the only person that I looked up. Um, because it was the most exciting because I didn't catch it the first time. 
Because it's not in the credits and it's right. not on IMDb. But it's like, okay, wait, pause before, to... we re- before we reveal who it is. Why do they do this? Why do they do this? It's like, a cameo. Yes, it's but like put him in the part. credits. Like he deserves it. Like I don't understand. It's a cameo bit part. Ugh. So that he can have the moment on Twitter later where he reveals that he was the one that was voicing. That's exactly. Okay. Tell well, us anyway. who is tell us who is voicing. Um, Tell us who is voicing the shore trooper that arrests Cassian. The shore trooper is played by Sam Witwer. Uh, you may know him from a few little minor things in Star Wars, but uh, he is best known, I think, for playing Darth Maul on uh, Clone Wars and Rebels. Depends on which circles of the internet you're on, but right, yes. But um, there you go. Sam Wit- You know who Sam Witwer is. If you're listening to right. this podcast, you know who Sam Witwer is. <laughs> but that was so cool that he was on that i was like oh that I was neat that. Yeah, yeah i did not catch that uh nope and he he revealed it on twitter that that is actually his voice one step closer closer to him being actual darth maul <laughs> so live action so he's come really close because he's the voice of darth maul in solo right that's we're, we're ray park's yeah. body Ray Park is doing the the visual acting and then they dubbed in Sam Witwer's voice. Nice. I mean, you know what's funny is he could, if they decide to do this, I don't know if they'll ever decide to do this, but if they ever decide to do like, uh, you know, Ray Park's great, but if they ever decide to do like a slightly younger Maul, like on just TV, Yeah, just put, put just, Sam Witwer Just put in Sam in there. Just, just put he'll Sam be fine. He'll be perfect. He look, it's great. He looks the part. He's fine. Just He's perfect. put Sam Witwer. So that's my, my pitch to Lucasfilm right now. If you ever decide to do a younger Darth Maul or whatever, or just have him do it. That's fine. Um, let's talk about the change in tone in this bit, because this is where the, the episode is almost like a mini episode. This is like its own episode, honestly. Like it felt it, like it a random totally little, separate thing. They they could have stretched this out to be an entire episode. Of they Cassie really could have. out on, on yeah. Kymos. And, and I predict if we get time material that one of the ones we're going to get is how Cassian ended up. Yeah. How Cassian ended up like what happened when he got to Nymos and like because we don't know how much time has passed. We just know that some time has passed. Right. Since he arrived. But yeah, it just it randomly kicks us to space Florida. Oh, I fucking love it. It was it's so good. Right. Uh speaking of things that I love, I would like to thank the force for Diego Luna's shirtless scene. Uh which I was not expecting. Girl. Um, so I was girl. like, oh my god. Oh, um, girl, I forgot how to behave. <laughs> I was feeling some type of way. It's the chest hair and the yeah. back and the shoulders. And I'm feeling some type. I am very respectful and I respect Mr. Luna as an actor for his craft. But I'm also very thirsty, man. I, and that was like having a whole pitcher of water poured directly onto me. I was uh, I was kind of disappointed because I was like, I heard that shower and I was like, are we going to get Andor booty in this show? Like, are we going to see Cassie and Andor's bare ass in the shower? Just his ass, you know, um, like, because it's not HBO, but like, you know, why not? <sighs> Look, I, I appreciate what they have given us. I, I'm, I'm not taking it for granted by any I'm means. I'm not just... taking it for granted because good lord, girl. But see, now that they've dangled this little piece of fruit in our faces, it's like, you know what? I want HBO Star Wars now. Give me some, <laughs> give me some I, Star Wars booty. I don't, but I do want... Listen, I'm just saying if anyone knows if there's a piece of media in Diego Luna's catalog where he is not wearing any pants in addition to not wearing a shirt, 
I would like to know what that is so I can watch it purely for research for academic purposes. Oh, you absolutely. And if there's any talented uh, artists out there who just want to kind of edit it for us and just make it visually. Oh, I'm sure. Good, I'm sure but... someone has drawn this. I'm sure someone has drawn this. Returning to returning to the serious stuff, uh, I do want to point out that that at least at this point he does still have Nimic's manifesto. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen to the manifesto, but I do want to point out that he still has kept it. It's in the box. Gosh. He did not get rid of it. Okay. Well, I mean, he's just distracting himself right now, but that's fine. It, he'll he'll find his way back to the rebellion. He's distracting himself with uh, vapid little trips to the store and spending his money on booze and snacks and have a good, good time, which is, I mean, I, I would probably be doing the same thing. But we so clearly he, see, sorry, go ahead. But we clearly see that no matter what Cassian seems to do, he always seems to find trouble or the empire seems yep. to find him. Yeah. So he, he goes out onto the beach and there's so much in these beach scenes. I love the weird aliens in this scene. I love the seeker droids in this scene. I, there's so much little detail in this. For just this like brief moment of, of Cassian essentially being apprehended, they packed so much into it. And it's not even like Easter eggs. It's just they really took the idea of what if Panama City Beach, Florida was in space. Yep, and it's exactly, exactly the type of people that you would see at a Florida beach just as aliens. I love it. I love this so much. This scene is also really uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> and like in the best way because this is one of those moments where it got super real like cassian just being stopped for looking like looking around too much in the middle of this Mm -hmm. because it's suspicious and then tries to explain that he went to the store and the trooper that's arresting him is like telling him he needs to calm down is like berating him and then when cassian's mad about he's telling him he needs to calm down and then they slap him in jail for six years for no reason six years i'm like (laughs) i'm like you you really were just like we are gonna cram so many politics into this huh I am living for it personally. It was awesome. And I, I love that they uh they're really showing us like why people fucking hate the Empire. Like let, let's just give you a really simple reason. It's because like the overreaching like politics that they clearly have of this like, you know what? Let's just give them six years. It's new new guidelines. Like it's just the new rules. It's it's know? literally the guidelines that the Emperor put in place at the start of the episode. And yeah. the judge tells Cassian, like, take it up with the Emperor if you have a problem, super sarcastically. <laughs> That's so great. Like, mm, just and and part of it too is something interesting with the show is seeing the way that we see the people at the top of the empire making the decisions. Then we also see how it affects just people in the ground level, how it affects the people of Ferrix and Aldani, how it affects Cassian here, uh, which is really, really cool and interesting. Uh, the Orabesh is more Easter eggs. Um, it does not say what the dialogue is saying. I do not remember, but I felt obligated to point out that I have seen, I believe on TikTok, someone translating. It might've been at Ginger's or Plants, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, but one of the names is somebody who's a crew member in the art department, I think, on the show. Uh, the other one is a real person's name. Uh, just, we don't know who who this person is. They're not in any of the, the credits for the show. But if you translate the Orabesh, you'll find some Easter eggs there. My final note is I just noted uh, how dystopian at the serial scene where he's sitting in the office cubicle. 
Yeah, I knew that they were going to randomly throw something like this at the end, like closing out every character's kind of story. But I didn't really expect like his random one to like, just kind of bookend this alternate kind of episode. Um, but it kind of is funny how he is just bored. Like he's clearly like, OK, now I, I have this not I don't want to call it a dream job because it's not his dream, but it's very clearly like a, well here is a job. job. Yeah, here's a job. Here is a job. job. Right. So, which I don't speaking know. as speaking as someone who is on the job hunt right now, um, would love to just get a boring office job through nepotism at present. Uh, that would be very, very nice. No, I I thought it was an interesting note to end on, and I I love that we've now firmly maneuvered many of the characters in place to where they need to go. I mentioned at the top of our episode, that this is the move the characters into place episode where we're, we're basically just positioning them to where they're all going to go. Uh, and we're clearly, we're moving characters gradually toward Ferrix. Uh, we've moved Deidre toward Ferrix. Uh, we've come back around to Ferrix. Uh, Cassian is being jerked out of his comfortable um, retirement in space, Florida. Uh, and Cyril is here. And I have a theory, things are going to kick off for the the sort of ferric side of the plot when someone finds Cyril working at this job or Cyril approaches the ISB. And that's going to kick a chain of events into motion. That's my theory at present. Oh, you want to talk we... about who directed and wrote the I, episode? I was literally about to say that. You cut oh, me off. Sorry, start over. I, I will talk about, I can talk about, uh, I can talk about them if you would like. So sure. this episode is directed by Benjamin Karen. Benjamin Karen uh, will also direct the finale to episode nice. so if you remember we have a three episode arc episodes eight nine and ten and then the finale is a two-parter 11 and 12 benjamin karen will be directing those he has directed multiple episodes of the crown he has directed one of the worst episodes of sherlock uh <laughs> the final problem but we will not hold this against them the writing in that episode was terrible but the direction was, was basically functional for what it was and as far as the writer goes this episode is written by stephen schiff stephen schiff's other works as a writer include uh, The Americans, Ultimate Rush, uh, the screenplay for True Crime, and Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. So that is who wrote this episode. Nice. He, he was also a consulting producer on Casa, uh, which was, I think, the first episode. Yes. All righty. What are your final thoughts on the episode, Bradley? Um, My final thoughts are just that this was the best episode of Andor by far. Honestly, it was just so engaging that I, don't know, I might say that this was the best episode of Star Wars TV so far. Like, I don't know. This is pretty fucking good. Like, I'm, it gave me some good vibe. I, I am going to say, God, I'm going to have to do the thing that I do with the movies. On a technical level, if you asked me, like, what is the best technically made episode of Star Wars TV live action thus far? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say this one. I think that if you add my personal feelings into it, that I think that episode five of Obi-Wan Kenobi might barely eke it out. 
just because that one was also so good. But they're also doing two very different kinds of good. Right. And like, I don't want to, I don't like want to dog on like Mandalorian or Book of Boba Fett or anything like that. Because like, first of all, all Star Wars is good Star Wars. So let's. All Star Wars is good Star Wars, but not all Star Wars is created equal. Right. And like things like, I feel like shows like the Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett are like there for like your enjoyment. Like you're not supposed to be like so fucking serious about them versus more shows like Kenobi or Andor where like you're kind of starting to feel things when you watch this show. Absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely think like my own final thought about it is if this is the mid season episode, I am, I am ready for whatever's coming for the next five and especially those finale two. I am terrified for where this is going because we have no idea we are running out of trailer footage. And what's crazy is like, if we're to look at this, like we look at other Star Wars shows, we're at the penultimate episode so far, like based on like Mandalorian or something. So the fact that we're getting so many more episodes. We're getting now, more. We're getting like this is actually episodes. really exciting. So I'm excited to see where this goes. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, Disney's been starting to move sort of to doing longer form TV. Uh, so they'll do the occasional limited series, but like Daredevil's going to be 18 episodes like Andor's 12 episodes like this really they are really starting to figure out how to do their tv and it is it is fantastic all righty well that's it for this week don't forget i didn't mention it at the top of the episode but you can also find me as a player on the four light and dice podcast a star wars 5e ttrpg podcast hosted and DM'd by Chris from Dark Side Divas, with myself, our friend Hope Mullinex from J Guys and Jedi, Jess from RuPalp's Padres, and our friends Colton and Nathan. Uh, it is set in the High Republic era. It is fantastic. Several episodes are out. It has sound effects. It has music uh, by the wonderful Gushkov, who has done graciously given us permission to use the High Republic soundtrack. I don't want to spoil too much of what's in those episodes, but you should definitely go and check them out. They are absolutely fantastic. And Bradley, let's go ahead and run the socials and let me go to bed because I have a For Light and Dice recording session tomorrow. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Gold Squad Gaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Gold Squadron Gaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at Gold Squadron Gaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. Sorry, the cat was uh, the cat was screaming outside the door. Yeah, he was just, he was, he was absolutely just screaming outside. He thinks when I talk, he doesn't understand the concept that I'm not talking to him.